This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Koberlein. Spoiler alert. In the movie Inside Out, the mind of an 11-year-old girl is driven by emotions. But is that view of psychology accurate? In today's show, Grant Guthiel, Associate Professor of Psychology at Nazareth College, will talk to us about the psychology of the human mind and whether emotions really do govern our lives. So one of the latest movies is uh, Inside Out, the new Pixar movie, and it gets into the head of an 11-year-old girl. A scary place to be. A scary place to be. And I wanted to ask you about how accurate or inaccurate some of the portrayals of this actually are. The thing that Pixar did really well in this movie is they kept it simple. So where they win is they focused on what behavioral scientists call basic emotions. And I have seen the movie, but I may get some of the names wrong, but you've basically got happy, anger, sad, disgust, and fear. Right. There may have been for joy. Okay, so joy instead of uh, instead of happy because joy is a better name and a better character. Right. There is a fair amount of debate on how many basic emotions there are. These are things that are defined as emotions and more importantly, emotional expressions that are universally understood. Right. This so, is cross cultures. Cross cultures. So. When you call anger a basic emotion, what a psychologist means by that is you can show a 10-year-old kid in upstate New York a picture of an, uh, a guy from the Australian outback who's 90 years old with an angry face, and the 10-year-old kid in Rochester is going to go, that guy's angry. I get that. That universality is what we mean by basic emotions. And what Pixar did is cool, that was cool with that is... They stuck with the basic emotions, but when they played them out, they played them out at a much more complex level. So as a basic emotion, happy is just, I'm fed, somebody's smiling at me, I don't have gas, whatever. I mean, talking about it from a baby's perspective, right? Right. Angry, um, I don't have my toy, you took my toy, I'm hungry, I don't feel well. Really, really basic stuff. But what Pixar did is take the basic emotions and then layer on top of that all the complex stuff that makes us human, that makes us interesting, and that makes emotionality in our makeup such a difficult and fascinating thing to play with. So you're not just happy because you just got fed. You're happy because somebody was nice to you, or you're scared or angry because your family's moving across the country. Right. It works. It really does. It's very simple, but they took a very simple, you know, understood or accepted idea of basic emotions of four or five or six basic emotions stuck with that and played off it and the individual characterizations of those emotions work pretty well i mean to the extent that they're animated characters they're funny but that notion of basic four or five emotions that develop very early in life although they're not innate is a good one and it works now one of the things i you, you see in this sh- in the show is that different emotions are in charge at different times. So so basically, it's like there's a control panel. And right. Joy may be in control or sad or anger. And right. Is that somehow how we work? Do we have different emotions that become dominant? It feels like that. Or I mean, well, when you read other people. At, basic, at a basic level, certainly. The 
truth about emotions to the extent that psychologists understand emotions. And a dirty little secret from my field is emotions are terrible. Emotions are incredibly difficult to study. Theories of where emotions come from are convoluted and difficult and don't really explain the richness and the variety in emotional expression or emotional basis. But, you know, you've got fight or flight. If you've ever felt that feeling of kill it or run up a tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I mean, that that is that control panel notion. That's fear basically diving over everybody else's <laughs> head to hit the panic button and scream, run! And we do that. Right. Certainly, there are times where you feel happy. There are times you feel unavoidably sad that overwhelm you. But the thing that's more true and what makes emotions from a behavioral science standpoint so hard to deal with is most kids, certainly an 11-year-old kid, but, you know, most kids, most adults, after you get past a certain point in development, you don't feel one thing. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, you feel multiple things at the same time, or the emotions are snapping. You know, it's like, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm scared, I'm happy, I'm sad. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. So Why people th- cry at weddings and stuff. Which is a beautiful thing. And there's a great developmental story there where you get a four-year-old, you know, looking at her grandma because, I don't know, her aunt's getting married. Grandma's just sitting in the church, you know, weeping uncontrollably, with a smile on her face. And the four-year-old looks at her utterly dumbfounded and said, Nana, why are you crying? Because I'm happy. And the kid looks at her like, you just told me you eat dirt. (laughs) I I don't get that. That's a true aspect of human development. Little kids don't get that. And even if they feel multiple emotions, they don't recognize it as that. And one of the hardest things to do from a developmental standpoint is to move past those basic emotions to what are called self-conscious emotions or also called um, or different types of emotions, you know, feeling multiple emotions at the same time and being able to deal with that. That takes years. And it's one of the hardest things for a human being to do. One of the things that really marks a mature human being is someone who understands their own emotional state, recognizes where it can, where it comes from and can use it effectively rather than, you know, let it ruin their life. That's mm-hmm. really hard and there are millions of therapists making god-awful amounts of money <laughs> helping many, many people get through that quagmire. The thing that Pixar does in that movie is they give you the control panel with the four or five characters, but then they layer all the rest of that stuff on top of it, and nobody questions it because, yeah, that's how we think. That's that's what an 11-year-old would do without getting into all of the complexities, without getting into all of the nuances that they're representing, but not discussing, which is really smart storytelling because you don't want to go there. Right. Well, I know there's also, we kind of have a simplistic view of the idea that there's rationality and reason, and then there's emotion. Oh, that's ridiculous. And, and the two are separate. It, it, oh, man, that is, huh, that is just so goofy. No, it's utterly wrong. Sitting here, okay, what we're doing here is we're doing a podcast about a movie. We're sitting here being scientists. We're being rational. We're analyzing the movie. But we're having emotional reactions to the movie as we analyze it. One of the reasons we're sitting here is we wouldn't be sitting here if the movie didn't sell. 
Right. We wouldn't be sitting here if Pixar blew it. We're sitting here because, man, Pixar makes you cry. And this movie does that. So the idea that rationality and emotion are separate is just dumb. Ask any good scientist, any one of them, behavioral scientist, biological, physical scientist, why do you do what you do? And you might get a whole lot of things. Well, I got to pay my bills. I got into science when I was a kid. No, no. The answer to that question is a profoundly emotional answer. I do this because I must no. Right. Because it bugs me. How does, what is that? How does that work? How do I figure that out? And how does it connect to all this? I have to know. I have to know. <laughs> and that's what drives people to get up in the morning. I'm going to screw up the quote and you can correct me, but I, I want to say it's Einstein because, of course, I'm a psychologist, so everything's from physical Einstein. science is Einstein. But <laughs> it's, you know, I want to know the thoughts of God. Everything else is details. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, that's it. I want to know. That's what makes science powerful and sometimes a little dangerous. But scientists do what they do out of emotion. So what about the idea that uh, emotions are, are irrational in the sense that a lot of times we'll say that people are making bad choices because of their emotions. And it's the emotions that are at fault. If that if we just looked at it thoughtfully, we would make the right decision. I mean, are, are emotions just simply a hindrance that, that oh, come God. from our legacy? Or is it something that's... You cannot look at emotion as a hindrance. Fear works. There's reasons we have fear. Fear keeps you alive. Fear keeps you from doing stupid stuff. Fear normally keeps you from, keeps you from saying, yeah, I can, I, I can fly. I can jump off a 50-foot you know, balcony and land in a pool. Sure. Fear keeps you alive. Fear keeps you from getting into situations where you can, where you can be harmed. It, it's a good thing. You don't have to make a rational decision to work it out completely. If you've just got a feeling about it, if it Leaf. works 99 times out of 100, and that's it actually does. a benefit. It's, and, and it's actually incredibly efficient. And the idea that you have emotion on one side and rationality on the other, again, is utterly wrong-headed. The two work in concert. You don't have two brains. You got one brain. It's got two. The, le the left brain, right brain oh. thing. <laughs> really? You, you had to bring. You had to go there. You had to push that button. For well, me, you know. Ah, oh. you got one brain. It's got two hemispheres. There's a thing called the corpus callosum. Yeah, there is some differential processing in the hemispheres. But ask any neuroscientist at all, they will laugh and say, "Yeah, you have one brain." Right. Emotions and rationality are part of that brain. Emotions and rationality work in concert. There are times where one overrides the other. You can make stupid decisions out of sheer emotionality. And, you know, we have romantic comedies and we have all kinds of literature and art based right. on that. But you can make utterly stupid decisions based on sheer rationality. Right. Because, well, of course, two plus two equals four. Yeah, I get 2 plus 2 equals 4, but in this particular case, you have to recognize 15,000 other variables mm -hmm. that impact decision-making and people's behavior and how the world works. And if you don't look at those, you fail, straight up. I mean, ask any, you know, the classic case of any scientist or any, quote, geek or, you know, somebody, some guy who's not terribly in touch with his emotional side, you know. <laughs> He can't get a date because he can't figure out that all the girl wants is for him to say, 
I, you look pretty, right. or thank you, or something really basic, but rationally, well, that's, that's silly. Of course she looks nice. She knows she looks nice. She owns a mirror. Why do I need to say that? Because you need to say it, pinhead. This is why you can't get a date. <laughs> the idea that emotions and cognitions are separate is foolish. Right. They work in concert, or if not in concert, at least mixed up in the same batch of stuff. In the movie, she's not just sad, or she's not just happy. She's sad about something, or happy about something. And when she learns to think differently about her environment, when she adapts cognitively to her environment, learns how to deal with living, I think it's in San Francisco? It looks like it, yeah. I think so. She feels better. Right. When she learns and thinks, the emotions follow. Right. The emotion, the emotional sadness is what drove her to make those cognitive changes. I feel terrible. I have to do something. What am I going to do? I'm going to try to run away. That doesn't work. Okay, right. I'm going to try to make this work. Now I feel better. And that seems to be something as part of a, a mature integration of emotions. Oh, yeah. Take which a bad experience and say, well, I'm going to learn from this and build from it. Or you take a good experience and you can cherish that as an individual experience, even though it ends. And exactly. And, you know, you know, we have aphorisms all over the world. You know, ter- you know make the, if you get lemons, make lemonade. Right. Um, sure, that's stupid, but there's a grain of truth in it. Figure out how to learn from it. How many times have parents said to kids, you need to learn from this? It's, uh, you want to punch them in the face because of emotion. But <laughs> it's not a dumb thing to say. Right. It's meaningful and it works. We're an integrative whole, and that's yes. what's important. When we work, we are an integrated whole. When we, when we make bad choices and do stupid things, it's because things are disjointed and disconnected. Wow, I just sounded like a therapist. You're listening to One Universe at a Time. I'm your host, Brian Koberlein. We've been talking with Dr. Grant Guthiel, Associate Professor of Psychology at Nazareth College, about the movie Inside Out. In the second half of our show, Dr. Guthiel will ask a few questions about where we are in the universe and how that limits our view of the night sky. So, from a completely naive perspective, if I were a human scientist, a human physicist, astronomer, and I want to look out at the universe, it seems to me that we've kind of got the same problem as somebody who waited too long to buy Van Halen tickets (laughs) and got stuck with the obstructed view seats, because we're not anywhere special in the galaxy or the universe, whatever the right term is. I mean, we're kind of off to one side, and it seems like there's going to be a lot of crap in the way. So you, metaphorically, you really can't see the band very well. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, We are, uh, our galaxy is about 100,000 light years across, so it has a radius of about 50,000 light years. Okay. And we are 30,000 light years from the center. So kind of in the middle, a little bit towards the edge. And we're kind of smack in the middle of the galactic plane. So, so yes, our view is definitely obstructed. Uh, When you look up at the sky and you see the Milky Way, in some sense, the Milky Way is in our way. It's, It's blocking our view from more distant things. So what do you do about that? Well, there's several things you can do. One is you can just deal with it. Uh, You can look at the Milky Way and say, well, okay, that's fine. It's pretty. It's nice. One of the big problems is that within the plane of the Milky Way, there's a lot of dust and stuff. And so one way to do that is to 
take the assumption that the universe is probably pretty much the same in all directions. And based upon all the observations that we have, if you look in you know a particular direction and you see galaxies, if you looked in a different direction, you'd see roughly the same number of galaxies. You'd see the same types of galaxies. Really? So yeah, it's it's the idea of of homogeneity and isotropy. So if something is homogeneous and isotropic, that means that in any direction you look, you would see statistically pretty much the same same thing. All right. right. So not identical galaxies, but an identical distribution of, and I'm going to pick a number out of, I had a dozen different types of things. Right, right. Some more common, some less common, but all there. If you see a dozen galaxies at a kind of rough distance of so many billion years. So the universe follows the normal curve. Yeah, basically. (laughs) That's That's, That's kind of the idea. And so one way to deal with it is just to look out of the plane of the Milky Way. So if you look away from where all the gas and dust is, then you get a clearer view. Okay, so when you say plane of the Milky Way, I'm thinking like in three-dimensional space, if the plane is here, you can look above it or below it, and it's clearer? Right. Okay. Right. And if you look out in that direction, then then you're not looking through the galaxy. All right. And we can do that? I mean... We, We can look in any direction we want. But it would seem like the Milky Way is so big that you can't peek over the top or look under the bottom. Well, the Milky Way is big, but it's also very thin. So you can kind wow, of that's you weird. can kind of think of a, the Milky Way as kind of a, a very thinly cooked egg in the sense that it's it's got the thin part of the Milky Way and it's got a bulge in the center. Okay. So kind of the bulge is kind of like the yolk and you've got the rest of the 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 white going off in all directions. And what's above it and below it are other galaxies. Well, yeah, in, in in general space, you'd see different galaxies or quasars or things like that. But the the galaxy itself is actually fairly thin. Wow! And so we're within the plane of the galaxy. If you look, we're part of the, we're, so we're part of the white of the egg. Right, we're part okay. of the white of the egg. And if you look not along the plane, well, there isn't a whole lot of stars to look through. I mean, you right. can see some stars, but you don't see this vast cloud of of the Milky Way or the dust or anything like that. So there are parts, there are directions in which the universe is actually fairly clear. And are those interesting places to look? Sure, oh, because okay. because they give us a deep view. So so a deep one of, view a deep view. You know, one of the the most famous photographs of Hubble was called the ultra deep field. Okay. And basically, what they did was they picked a region of sky in which it didn't look like there was anything there. All right. No, no close stars, no galaxies, or anything like that. And you did a very long series of time exposures to gather a whole bunch of light What from a region that looks essentially black. So you're looking for light in a place that, at least to the naked eye or even to a telescope over a short period of time, right. looks like there is no light. Right. And in this case, it was, it was a region of sky that if you took, for example, a grain of sand or a grain of salt and held it at about arm length away... Mm-hmm. That's the area of the sky that you that we were looking at. Wow. So this very small region. And if you look at this and you do a long time exposure, what you see is something on the order of ten thousand galaxies that are that are in that direction. And Wow, my head just blew up. <laughs> so you've got tens you know, ten thousand galaxies or more in an area the size of a grain of sand at arm's length. A lot of times we couldn't see that, but in this particular region, it was designed, you know, we, we chose this region because it was particularly clear. Dark. It was particularly dark. And so we can do that in some directions. 10,000. 10,000. 
Grain yeah. of sand, 10,000 galaxies. Yes. Milky Way is a galaxy, so 10,000 10,000 of those, yes. Roughly that size. Roughly galaxies of, of roughly 200 billion stars to 400 billion stars each. Man, if that doesn't make you feel like an insignificant monkey, I don't know what's going on. It is considered one of the most profound images we've ever made. Wow, um, seriously, I need to go sit down and have a beer and think about that one. That's pretty intense. Yeah, it, it gives us an idea of just how huge the universe actually is. And of course, that's only the observable universe. <laughs> there we go. But, the, but there are other ways, too, in the sense that, for example, if you look in the center of our galaxy in, in, in Sagittarius, there is um, what you would see is dust. Okay. It's, all you would see. And in fact, if you look at the Milky Way in the center of our galaxy, what you see are kind of dark bands within the Milky Way okay. because the dust is blocking the light. Oh. So so in the visible spectrum, we can't see what's at the center of our galaxy. Because it's blocked. Because it's blocked. The, the, the dust is just in our way. Do we have a hunch what's there? Oh, we know exactly what's there because we're not limited to the visible spectrum. Okay. The gas and dust absorbs a lot of visible light. But it doesn't absorb radio light and some of the infrared light, and it doesn't absorb things like x-rays. So those get through. So, so those get through. So one of the things we can do, for example, is we can look in kind of radio and near-infrared at okay. the center of our galaxy, and we can actually see the radio emissions of stars in that region. And so one of the really cool things that we've done over time is if you look in that region and you look at the stars, you can see the stars moving. You can actually find, see how those stars are orbiting. And they're orbiting something very massive in the center. It's got to be a black hole. It, it is. All it's right. a supermassive black hole. It's about 4 million solar masses. And we can actually see this. We know by studying the orbits of these stars, not only that there's a black hole there, but how big this black hole actually is. Wow. And this is one of the techniques that we use a lot in astronomy, is that we're not limited to the visible spectrum. We can look at everything from long radio waves to short radio waves to microwaves uh, to infrared, visible, ultraviolet, uh, x-rays, gamma rays, the whole lot. And while things absorb light, they absorb different spectrum of light differently. Okay. So things can be transparent at one wavelength and not... Opaque at the other. And opaque at the other. All right. 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 At so, least theoretically, that makes sense. Right. Well, I mean, you can see this, for example, in, in materials that we have where you can have heat coming through a wall, but you can't see through the wall. Right. So infrared cameras. So, so infrared cameras can see through a wall because the infrared light is actually transparent. Every high-tech adventure movie on the planet. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Exactly. You know, we have the visible spectrum because the air is largely uh, transparent at those wavelengths. Why do we have eyes that see in the, in the wavelength that we have? Well, water is transparent, and so eyes evolving underwater would right. have to be able to get light, and air is transparent. Right. And so the, the colors that we see are in fact determined in part by the different colors that are absorbed or transmitted within our atmosphere. So, okay, this I'm, I'm probably diving off a really stupid cliff here, but uh, a radically different planet with mm -hmm. a radically different atmosphere could develop life that could see in a completely different end of the spectrum. Yes. If you had if you had a different atmosphere that absorbed different type of light, then it's possible that any life that form that formed there, if they evolved eyes, right. would would have to have something that's in that visible spectrum. <laughs> that's cool. You know. And that's I mean we we see this over and over again that the, our atmosphere absorbs light. Mm -hmm. That's part of the reason why a lot of times we we'll want to do space based 
observatories right. because they get out of that. Um, but ultraviolet, that get, for example, we can't have on ground. That gets to the original question. I mean, even if, you know, let's say, and there has to be, I, mean, I assume there are telescopes on the International Space Station, but even if you put a really cool telescope, even if you have Hubble, mm-hmm. you're still stuck in one chunk of one galaxy. How many in that? 10,000 in that little area. So there are billions and billions, as Carl Sagan would say. Yeah, exactly. Trillions of galaxies. So, and we can really see, we have the technology and the scientific understanding to be able to see in some meaningful sense, not just visible spectrum of light, but see across the spectrum that much area and that much information. Yes. It depends upon the design of the telescope. Right. Some some telescopes are designed that they can uh, detect things in a very narrow region, so they observe a very small patch of sky. Other ones are designed to to look at a wide patch of sky. Right. So it so it depends upon that. Um, you know, there's a lot of complications with things. So, for example, the more distant galaxies are moving away from us, mm-hmm. so their light becomes more and more red. Right. So one of the limitations of the Hubble telescope, it's a space-based telescope, it can see right. things very far away. The more distant the galaxy, the more their light is shifted to the red. Mm-hmm. And it shifts, you know, from the visible and the ultraviolet to the infrared and then to deep infrared. And it goes beyond what the Hubble can see. So, so the really, really most distant galaxies, there could be more distant galaxies than the Hubble t- telescope could see. Wow. Because it can't see far can't enough see into in that the range. infrared, right? It, it's limited to to kind of the near infrared. And the Hubble's been up there for a long time now. Yes, and it it's has. it's getting close to the end of its functional lifespan, isn't it? Right, right. And this is one of the reasons why they're looking at the Webb telescope. Mm-hmm. The Webb telescope is actually designed as an infrared telescope, so so we can see where the Hubble can't. So we can see further, and it can see more redshifted objects because okay. they've now redshifted all the way into the infrared in order to see the most distant galaxies the the earliest galaxies the most distant light that we can find you have to have an infrared telescope and that's why it's designed as an infrared telescope so when you say earliest galaxies first created after the big bang whatever the oldest ones that are out there does that imply that there are galaxies being created now that are galaxies being born today for example there could be. I mean, what we know is that the galaxies went through a period of high production and then and then kind of taper off. Oh, okay. So most of the galaxies have already been formed. All right. But but yeah, because light takes time to travel, the more distant an object is, the longer that light took to get right. to us. The older and so it is. we're seeing it from a time in the universe in which it was the universe itself was much younger. Got it. Okay. So that's that's how we have to deal with it. But it's it's only being able to look at all these different spectra. Okay. We can be so of this. If, you know, you had an infinite budget mm-hmm. and you could solve all of the problems inherent in this and you really wanted to see what was going on to answer, you know, one core question or half a dozen really deep questions, where would you put the telescope and what range of the spectrum would you put it in? It depends on what you want to look at. Oh, dang, you guys are just <laughs> like us. Yeah. God. It's one of those things where, for example, the, the, the Webb telescope is specifically designed to look at distant objects as, that are, are greatly infrared shifted. Right. They're, they're way into the infrared. 
And so it's good at looking at the most distant objects, which right. is with bigger resolution as we can. There's something that's been proposed as a kind of a different replacement for the Hubble, which would be a high-definition space telescope. The and Hubble's not high def? Well, the, hu- the Hubble was high def for its time, but it's old now. All right. So, All right. so if you look at, for example, the new pictures coming out on Pluto, mm-hmm. that we're actually starting to see some surface features. Imagine a telescope that was, instead of the size of the Hubble, you know, it was 12 meters across. So it was a 40 feet wide space telescope in the visible spectrum. Wow. It could give Pluto images similar to what we're getting now all the time. It could also do something that we'd really love to be able to do, which is to observe the spectra of atmospheres of planets around other stars. Are we looking for habitable planets? That's exactly it. So Goldilocks kind of planets. Goldilocks planets. And can you detect water vapor? Could you detect Mm. chlorophyll? Could you detect um, byproducts from civilizations? Could you detect all of these different things? In order to detect the spectra of atmospheres off of planets, you need a really high resolution visible spectrum telescope. Wow. And so that's one of them that's proposed. Uh, we have, But that would still be orbiting around the Earth. That would still be orbiting so, around the Earth. Yeah. So just push the really dumb question here. There would be no point in trying to design a NASA or a cooperative international venture in which you put a telescope on a rocket and shoot it to Alpha Centauri so you could see what's going <laughs> on out there. That, that would be stupid. Well, it would it would not be very useful in the sense that Alpha Centauri is only four light years away. Yeah, and and so that's, that's a small shift. So intergalactic like, distance is just too big. I mean, if right. you could send a telescope to the to the galactic core, that might be cool. But getting right. there is not possible. But then it would take thirty thousand years for the signal to get come back. back so yeah, okay. <laughs> it wouldn't help. Yeah, I mean, we haven't physically traveled very far at all. I mean, right. the, when we talk about space telescopes, all we're talking about is getting them outside of the atmosphere. Maybe a little bit distant from Earth. But that's but, it. But that's as far as it goes. But that's as far as you need to go for a lot of stuff. For a lot of things, yeah. But but we don't, you know, the Hubble telescope doesn't make more clear images because it's closer to objects. It's just because it's outside of the, the atmosphere. atmosphere. And the it. atmosphere just obscures a lot of stuff. Right. All right. So that's, that's the big difference. We've been talking with Dr. Grant Guthiel, an associate professor of psychology at Nazareth College. Our program is produced at RIT by Mark Gillespie, with support from the RIT College of Science. I'm your host, Brian Koberlein. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time.